Well, I like to begin on Reformation Sunday with these words. Knowing our past equips our present and it shapes our future. Really, our understanding and knowledge of, of the shaping work of God in the years gone by in His church is what gives us a balance, a sense of, of what is uh, as we currently stand. The, the things that they have battled and overcome, we benefit from today. Heresies called out and condemned give us clarity of thought, and uh, mistakes made in the past give us wisdom and help us to see uh, trip-ups along the way that we can avoid because we know where we've been. We share their story in our current day, and it helps us to plan and to live accordingly as we walk out our days. I found early on when I came in 2008 to Good Shepherd that our knowledge of church history was insufficient. It was lacking. And, and partly because of that, our church went through a very difficult time. We just didn't know our church history or we would have <laughs> avoided the mistakes that had been so often repeated in the past. And I think in, in 2010, the Lord just put it in my heart to begin steadily over a long period of time helping us learn and, and understand some of these, these shaping events of church history. And I set out to do it by, by considering uh, the Reformation and, and taking one Sunday out of a year and getting to know a significant person that has brought us to where we are today by God's work and grace. One of the most important people, Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, kids. Martin Luther, the guy that lived way before Martin Luther and had a lot more pale skin. Uh, October 34th, 1517. 1517, Martin Luther was raised up by God to stand in protest against the just mess and, and compromise and horrible practices of the Roman Catholic Church. He pounded on the, the castle door of Wittenberg his 95 protests, his, his theses that he had written. And he tackled all kinds of things, from the, the, the lying work of indulgences being sold, raising money, taking money from people with the promise that you can purchase a soul or escape judgment with a dollar amount. How cheap is God? doing violence to the gospel, keeping the people from the word of God so that they could protect power and manipulate the people. There was all kinds of compromise in the Roman Catholic Church. And friends, there still continues to be. So we are Protestant today. You might not have known that. You have roots that go back in protest. And they began with the shot heard around the world, 1517, when that Hammer pounded those first 95 protests there. It was the Reformation. It's, it's what happened. God used Martin Luther to reform his church, to bring her back to the Word of God, to be faithful. You could sum up the Reformation with the five solas. This is the Latin of, uh, of the Reformation. The five solas of the Reformation, and here they are. Sola gratia. It means we are saved by grace alone. It means that our salvation is not merited in anything that we do or perform or, or would be anticipated to do. It is truly and only the grace of God. It's a significant thing. That is not Jesus plus your works equal justification. It is we are saved by grace alone and then sola fide, by, through faith alone. So faith alone is what saves. Now that faith is never to be alone, as James reminds us, right? That faith is to find expression in good works and obedience. But that's the fruit, not the root. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, solus Christus, in Christ alone. There's no other Savior but Jesus. How many in the world today would hold that conviction? There's only one way, one truth, one life, and that's Jesus. And we are saved to the glory of God alone, not to your glory, not to my glory. There's no boast in us, friends, no boast. Boasting is excluded, Paul says. 
And so Martin Luther and the reformers convinced of these things began to speak. But how and by what authority did they do so? They did so on the authority of the Word of God. Popes and councils, they have erred, but the Word of God does not. And so they stood sola scriptura, and we today still stand similarly by God's grace. My word is only helpful to you as much as it is fixed and flowing from the word of God that is authoritative in this room. We all together find ourselves under this word, sola scriptura. Every truth claim is to be tried and judged by this book, the word of God. If it is found lacking, it is gone. If it squares, it is true. That's how we live our lives. And we owe so much, a debt of gratitude to God's work through Martin Luther, a courageous man who stood boldly and began a a, a massive movement. And so we are Protestant today. Here's where we've covered, starting in 2010, did Luther, Augustine, Calvin, Knox, Tyndale, Whitfield, Athanasius of Alexandria, uh, John Bunyan, William Carey last year. And so you see we're, we're covering not just the reformers or even the, uh, the early reformers, but we're covering significant men that God has used to shape the church. Uh, missionaries that he has raised up to be uh, really pathfinders in the work of global missions and others, theologians, writers, songwriters we're going to cover. There are a few men near the end of this list as I approach 70 uh, who are still alive, and my requirement to preach a biography sermon is that you are to be dead. You, you have to be in glory or you may let us down. And, uh, but my plan is so long that by the time we get to that, if I'm still alive, they won't be, most likely. They'll be in glory. And R.C. Sproul has already made his way face-to-face with Jesus. Powerful teacher, theologian, preacher of our day. And my final uh, Reformation Sunday sermon that I have planned when I turn 70 is in 2046, I want to give the story of the work of my father's life in preaching the Word of God. I don't know how I'm going to do that because I'm almost crying just thinking about it. But uh, if God gives us breath, and time, that's where we're going to go. So next year, you see Jonathan Edwards. Wow, I'm already excited to do that one. But this year, John Owen. John Owen lived from 1616 to 1683. You could know him as the great pastor theologian. There are many historical biographers, uh, some that you would recognize very much. J.I. Packer, for example, who said this, No one else outside of Scripture has shaped his faith more than John Owen. I mean, when Packer says that, that says so much about this man. Um, Sinclair Ferguson said the same thing about John Owen. And these, these men have read thoroughly throughout history and written volumes, and they point to John Owen as the most significant shaper, theologian of their joy in God the great pastor theologian. John Owen, I titled the sermon today as I studied his life. What I like to do is I want to get to know him so that I can introduce him to you. And then I want to ask what at the core of his heart, what was his heartbeat in ministry, in writing, in teaching, in preaching, in shepherding. And this is what I believe at the very heart of John Owen. It's a passion for holiness in the life of believers. Romans 8.13 is the verse that I picked. Let me read uh, Romans 8.11-13 to give you a little bit of, of a, a sense of where we're going as we draw this to a close this morning. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, let's just pause here, this is Trinitarian. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Who are we talking about here? The Father, good, always do this. When you see sentences like this, it's great to stop and say, well, okay, who is that? Well, that's the Father. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. 
He, the Father, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit. Oh, every member of the Trinity now in view. His Spirit who dwells in you. He's speaking to believers now. He's speaking to us, those who have embraced Christ as Lord, who've been forgiven, brought into life, filled with the Spirit. Now look at where he goes. So then... Believers, brothers, sisters, we are not debtors to live according to the flesh. We, we, don't, we don't have to live to the flesh. We don't owe the flesh, the old self, the BC person before Christ. We don't owe anything. And then the warning. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will perish. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Wow. Now, we're going to unpack this more, but I just have to say just a few pieces of this. This is not the threat that you can lose your salvation. He is not threatening a condition-based, keep your salvation by performing good works. That's not what this is. This is the real warning given to believers, just like in the book of Hebrews. The entire book of Hebrews is written this way. It's a warning given to believers with what goal? To help them persevere in obedience in Christ, in the power of the Spirit. To live out their salvation in a way consistent with the work of God in them. And what does that look like? It looks like going after sin in your life putting it to death the deeds of the body those who do this prove that they are truly saved they don't just wear a label they've not just just taken on some some easy believism oh sure i'm a christian but their life does nothing to confirm what they say they believe those who live this way show life and evidence of the power of the gospel now pause that, and we're going to circle through the life of John Owen and come back to this and really unpack this verse. So here we go on a stroll through history. Let's come back all the way to the year 1616. I titled this Brilliant Mind, Dead Heart. Brilliant Mind, Dead Heart. In 1616, John Owen was born in Stadham, England. He was the, the second son of Pastor Henry and his mom, Hester Owen. Uh, John Owen was a uniquely gifted and brilliant young man. It wouldn't have taken people long to notice this. He was uh, very, very sharp. He was an intellectual from day one. This is in England. King Charles I becomes king of England in 1625. And his appointment to the throne was followed almost immediately with a quarrel in Parliament. He believed that he had the, the God-given divine right to rule as he pleases, to go, to go to war with whomever he pleased, to do as he pleased with the throne, with the kingdom. And he took issue with the idea of the parliament telling him what he should or shouldn't do. In 1628, at age 12, Owen, <laughs> John Owen, entered Oxford University. Okay, he's 12. This guy is 12 years old. He's entering into high-level academic work at age 12, and he excelled. He studied the classics, and it said, uh, in fact, he said in his own words, early on in that work, he would study 18 to 20 hours a day. Now, you always, when you look back on a life, you don't want to just put on rose-colored glasses and pretend like the man was faultless. We need to see, this is one of Owen's greatest faults. He was so wired, so amped up. His mind was so exploding with all kinds of thinking and thoughts. He had a hard time turning it off and just going to bed. It's amazing. He said he, he basically just ruined his body because he didn't sleep enough. He was constantly studying, devouring books, working, writing, this is, I think, the weakness of his strength. 
And really, his entire life, he paid for this. As he got older, I think he did a little better with this, but in his uh, early and mid years, especially, he just didn't take care of his body. And it's a, a, an encouragement for us to remember. There are good things to do, but you've got to remember rest. Take care of your body. It's an interesting observation to think about a man so gifted by God and that struggle of his was a challenge. He was, in 1635, he was awarded the, a Master of Arts and he immediately began a seven-year follow-up degree in the graduate program at Oxford. He was working up through the ranks, highly recognized and esteemed in that university. And uh, basically, he was on the fast track to all kinds of things. That's where it was leading. Now, in 1637, he makes the, the, the insane decision, I'm sure, for all those around him, to leave Oxford University. Why would he do it? Well, he felt increasing pressure as he stood and, and rose through the ranks. He, he felt this pressure to, to compromise his Puritan principles. Now, it's interesting, the Puritan work, the Reformation has been underway. We're, we're about 100 years in now. Lots of writing, lots of teaching, and Owen had embraced these principles of living and was really a, a nonconformist at his, at his core. He, he did not sign on with the Roman Catholic Church and their uh, practices, and he took issue with a number of things, also with their politics. And so he felt this pressure and decided, you know what, I'm going to stick to my guns, I'm going I'm to be a man of conviction, and so he walked away from really being the rising star at Oxford University. He began to uh, tutor and, and preach in different places. Um, and then a few years later, the English Civil War breaks out. This is what happened uh, when the king wouldn't stop with this divine right thing. We, we have a civil war that we know, but in England, their civil war was, in this period of time, uh, just brutal. And uh, it was basically proponents of King Charles. We think he should be able to rule, have divine right, or parliament. We're, we're, we would hope to see more of a republic here, ruled by the people for the people. Interesting that this struggle was happening, and a lot of roots of, uh, of our forming and foundation. There was all kinds of this, uh, this, this echo that led to a lot of people coming from these regions, from Ireland, Scotland, England, over to the new land, and uh, holding how important it is when it comes to politics on these things. Now, unexpected conversion, this is quite a story. In 1642 as well, Owen was 26 years old. He went to hear a famous preacher. So he traveled with a buddy of his way out to hear this famous preacher. And, and, and there was crowds that had gathered. Now, just picture this. Picture that you came a great distance today and you were here to hear someone great, someone famous, someone recognized, and that person didn't show up. And all of a sudden, I crawl up into the pulpit, and I'm like, well, guys, here's the deal. We don't know where he is. Now, Owen's friend wanted to leave, but Owen, for some reason, he just, he felt compelled to stay, and he stayed in his seat. And this ordinary country preacher opens the word of God. And something extraordinary happens in the brilliant man who sits out in the audience, who came to hear the big show. And he just got the ordinary guy, but he heard supernatural preaching through the power of the Spirit. And he was saved where he sat. God reached down, opened his eyes, convicted him of his fear and his sin, and held him in Christ in the gospel. Oh, you of little faith. Why are you fearful? It was a huge moment for John Owen. It brought together all of the principles of the Reformation, all of this Puritanism that had rooted in him, really from his, his father's teaching and things, but, but really not found a home in the gospel in his soul until now. And it was like all of the things just came together. The Spirit's power hit. All of his thinking came alive, and stuff started to happen quickly. Now, unwavering conviction and courage, these, these are words that define John Owen. Immediately, he began to write. 
um, that same year, he put out his first book, and his first book was titled A Display of Arminianism. Uh, he saw that this uh, errant theology was being espoused and propagated really in reaction to a lot of early Reformation work that was solid. Uh, Jacobus Arminius uh, and his crew that proposed five points of Arminian theology, and uh, honestly, their emphasis on free will was c- completely unbiblical, just not coming from the text. And John Owen saw this, and he feared for those who were jumping on that bandwagon, and so he basically did his best to, to deal with exposing this Arminian theology. He was a man who was deeply committed to the Word of God, like Luther, Calvin, Augustine, those who had gone before him, he held to a high view of the sovereignty of God in all things, but certainly in salvation. And this concept of free will, as he looked through the pages of his Bible, he was just like, where is this? Where does this come from? In the scripture, it doesn't, friends, it doesn't. Adam and Eve had free will, and they chose rebellion and sin, and from that point forward, enslavement of the will is what we have we are born enslaved we're not free to choose obedience we are free to choose what we long for most and what is that darkness rebellion and sin and so john owen wrote a masterpiece of of truth and and deep rooted scripture to uh really kind of pull the veil back on this theology that was so errant In 1643, he became a pastor at Fordham, Essex, and that was a big step for him. Uh, You know, if you think, as he was so wired as a thinker, as a theologian, as a writer, and now all of a sudden he's a pastor, how's he going to do? How's he going to respond? He excelled. In fact, this is why I believe the title, the pastor theologian, fits so well. His work up here was not just cerebral, not just scholastic. It was shepherd-motivated. He loved the people, loved and cared for the people. I think it was his connection to the pulpit and the people that drove his ministry in his writing and his theology. In 1644, he married uh, Mary Rook, and I don't know very much about her. There's very little written about their home life or Uh, really their relationship or Owen's, you know, own personal life. There's no journals or anything like that that we can get to know the man at a deeper level that way. Uh, Scholars have have dug and dug to try to find that, Uh, but we don't have a lot to go with there. In 1647, John Owen wrote The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, which is one of the most magnificent uh, defenses of the definite atonement of Christ for sin. He made clear that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die for a possible group of people or a a, a potential sin uh, group. He died for actual sinners who had been chosen by God and who had committed actual sins. And that blood had been applied in God's sovereign work to those sinners in precision, a definite atonement, precise, not potential. It is such an important thing to see. It is glorious. And even to this day, it remains one of the most uh, uh, impassable, undeniable works of text theology that stands. Now, in 1647 and 48, John Owen suffered the loss of his daughter Mary, his daughter Eliza, and his son Thomas. And we'll say more about this in a minute, uh, but this was very, very difficult, very difficult for uh, the, the family as they walk through these dark days. 1649, Charles I is executed. They finally get a hold of Charles. The people rise up. They sentence him to death, and they killed their king. England killed the king. What do you do then? Well, there was a bit of chaos happening, um, Oliver Cromwell, a familiar name, was given a leadership role to basically hold the kingdom together because the kingdom at this point reached beyond England. It was connected now to Ireland and Scotland as well, and there was work to be done. 
England was all over the place, and someone had to keep this thing from just tearing itself apart. Oliver Cromwell was the man tasked with this role. He seemed to be overall a good man, but he was a sinner too. Eventually, he dissolved the parliament and became what is referred to as Lord Protector over England. In 1649 through 1657, John Owen is basically brought in by Oliver Cromwell to be his right man, uh, right-hand man. Um, he loves the preaching and teaching ministry of Owen for more than one reason. Number one, it's from the scriptures. Number two, it's wonderful for him politically speaking because it gives the, the foundation of, of what they're trying to give is, is the, the work of the people, right? The understanding of sin. If you centralize power under one man and tell him he has divine right, just you wait till sin finds expression in that man. It'll shred the kingdom. The only king that can handle such power and authority is King Jesus. And so he took John Owen and he, uh, as much as Owen protested and said, no, I'd, I'd, I'd rather not do that, he insisted. And, and really, in, in some of these things, Owen really didn't have a choice. He was compelled to go in various ways and capacities. And uh, he went and preached to the armies in Ireland and Scotland. Um, he was then placed as uh, the overseer, chancellor of Oxford University, and was able to completely retool that entire school to be founded on the word of God. He, he kept all of these things going during these years. A very busy man. Too busy, in my opinion. Too busy. Too many yeses. Although some of the no's uh, he had no choice over, uh, they became yes. Now, in the middle of all this, John Owen was sustained by grace through seasons of sorrow, deep, deep sorrow. Um, in 1650, uh, Elizabeth, his, his daughter, dies. And then five years later, two more of his sons die. Now, we're up to six children that John Owen has buried and done funeral services for. This will blow your mind. The death of John Owen's entire family occurred in a span of 31 years. He lost all 11 children that his wife bore to him, and he buried them all. And then his wife died. Now, I just can't even, I remember learning this in, in church history, and it just, how in the world can one man stand up under that weight of loss? over the course of all of those years. It wasn't all at once. It was spread out again and again and again and again and again. The only way, my friends, is by the grace of God. Somehow in the midst of all of this loss, he continued to preach and write and teach and travel. He never turned away from the Lord cling with all his might to God's grace. And he was upheld by his grace. 1656, John Owen publishes what is my favorite uh, work that he's done. He published 24 volumes, by the way. I don't have all of them in the timeline. Uh, the Mortification of Sin in Believers is one of my favorites. I have really enjoyed that. One, because it's small. Uh, two, because it's incredibly practical theology, and I'll say more about that in a little bit. Just a year later, he publishes Communion with God. Um, Owen had a delight in the Trinity. He loved the Trinity. In fact, he wrote pieces on the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and how to commune with God with all members of the Trinity. It is a masterful work, but it's unbelievably relational. Not like a lot of theologians that are just cerebral. This is so relational in his work, in his encouragement of the church, in their fellowship with God through the gospel. In 1657 as well, John Owen opposes the offer that was made to Oliver Cromwell to make him the king. Now, <laughs> this is the irony. He opposed the king and in all the work he did, he said, no, that's a terrible idea. And then the crown was offered to him. Thankfully, he said no, but inside, 
when he found out that John Owen had signed, along with many others, a paper that, that opposed this, Cromwell took issue with it and began to pull the influence from Owen. And a year later, when Cromwell dies, Owen's freedom was even more restricted and his influence was diminished. Uh, he found himself a lot less in the public work, and so he gave himself more fully to writing and pastoring. And it's good because the times were coming of great testing. In 1660, the monarch is restored, quote-unquote, under uh, Charles II, who was a terrible leader. And in 1662, just a couple years later, uh, the Act of Uniformity was passed. Now, this may seem a small thing to us, but the, the church had gathered what is called the Book of Common Prayer together. Now, in that book, there's some great Puritan teaching. However, it was that it was uh, required of these pastors to ascribe to what the church was putting out and telling them what they could and could not do. The Act of Uniformity. Does it sound familiar? It may not be too long before we have some silly piece of legislation like this that says what we can and cannot preach. And so in one day, there were 2,000 pulpits absolutely emptied. 2,000 Puritan pastors from all over England in one day were expelled from their pulpits because of this. It was devastating to the church uh, not long after that, the Five Mile Act was passed, which basically limited even more the nonconformists. They couldn't preach within five miles of where they had preached before, which basically meant the idea uh, you couldn't truly shepherd a flock. You could travel around and say things, but you couldn't shepherd. Somehow, and, and there's some curious, somehow maybe Owen was, was, was looked past in some of these things because he simply kept preaching. He did not let up. And he was, by God's grace, protected in many of, uh, of his movements and, and preaching work. Sometimes he would travel, but a lot of his ministry began to flow through his pen, and he wrote and published. Now watch how this unfolds. Um, he is a theologian with a pastor's heart, a pastor's, a shepherd theologian. He said this, the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. Now, is that not important for our day as well? What is the primary duty of the pastor? Feed the hungry flock with the word of God. Don't hold it back. Don't apologize for it. Don't give them just a handful of verses. Feed them the good word of God. Serve it up and let them eat. In 1665, the Great Plague swept through England, specifically in London. There was 15% of London's population that died. Actually, in one week, 7,000 people died in this Great Plague. Owen lost his son Matthew in this. Just a year later, the Great Fire, everything that happened in this time was titled The Great. Okay? It, it, was, it, just, it was big. It was devastating. In fact, many people concluded this was the wrath of God for actions that were being taken politically at the time. I don't know if we can say 100% or not, but certainly this was judgment befalling. The Great Fire London is largely destroyed. As a result, many, if not most, of the pastors in that area, they fled, they left. You run, run from the plague, you run from the fire, you run from... Uh, the devastation of the city, but who will stay and shepherd the people? John Owen. He stayed. He stayed and he cared for the people. He continued to pastor and write. Look at some of the things he wrote. He began a commentary on Hebrews. Now think about the content of Hebrews, the encouragement not to shrink back in times of persecution, but to stand. It's a perfect commentary to write. It was a pastor's heart that came with this commentary in 1668. In 74, Discourse on the Holy Spirit. And then in 75, John Owen is forced to bury his wife after she dies. 
another funeral is performed. All of his kids are gone, and he is alone. And so a year later, Owen remarries uh, for the last few years of his life. I believe at this point he was like uh, 60 years old, something like that, 60 or 67. In 77, he wrote Justification by Faith. In 78, just, we've got to feel this. Do you have any idea how hard it is to write this kind of theology? This is precision. This is, this is scholarly works. They are fine-tuned theology. And he just pushes it out. Pushes it. He's writing not with a Bic pen either, right? This is like dip, 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 dip. Think of that. Candlelight, all of the things that blow our minds. He was a prolific theologian in his writing. 78, he wrote The Person of Christ, just an adoration of Christ himself and a theology on Christ. And then in 83, we're skipping a bunch, but 83, after dealing with severe asthma, gallstones, great sickness, he, his body was a wreck by this point in his life. In uh, August, he died at age 67. In fact, he learned as he was dying that his final manuscript had been received and was going to be printed, and just the next year, uh, The Glory of Christ came out, which many agree is like the, the preeminent work of Owen. And it's a, just an adoration of the King of Kings as he writes. You can still buy these works today. If you choose to read them, read them from someone who updates the language because everyone agrees John Owen wrote unbelievably difficult uh, language from back then. It's super old and archaic. Um, find someone who can translate for you and you will be blessed. Now, this is what he said just before he died. I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm, but while the great Pilot, Jesus, is in it, the loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. Hmm. One of the things that historians and those who knew Owen comment about him is his humility. God used Owen in powerful, shaping ways. His life echoes through the ages, and he calls himself here a poor under rower, someone down in the, in the pit of the ship just pulling on the oar faithfully. Christ is the pilot. And then he says this to encourage the church, believers around, live and pray and hope and do not despair. The promise stands invincible that he, he will never leave you or forsake you. That's a good way to go right there. Those are great words to part with. An enduring legacy. There's a lot of things that come to mind as I observe Owen's life. Uh, conviction, humility, um, a, a man who was selfless in his just pouring out of his labor to pastor and to teach. This is what Owen summed his life up, his, his main goal. He said, My heart's desire unto God and the chief design of my life in the station wherein the good providence of God has placed me. That's what it is. That mortification and universal holiness may be promoted in my own and in the hearts and ways of others to the glory of God so that the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be adorned in all these things. To adorn the gospel of Christ in the holiness of his people as they live their lives in the power of the gospel. That's an awesome desire, an awesome life longing that he shared. There's some terms that may be new to you. Mortification is not a term we use a lot. You think of a morticianer, Mortify, to, to put to death, someone dealing with death. Mortification is the putting of, to death of sin. That's what he's, in, in that context, what he's saying. To mortify is to kill sin in your life. Universal holiness, words we use maybe would be to grow in godliness or progressive 
sanctification or holiness. It's basically, as believers, it's becoming who we are in Christ. Live it out now, day by day, be washed, grow in godliness. I would say it this way, uh, I'm not sure where I heard this, but it fits well here. To, to be at peace with God is to be at war with my sin. To, to be at home with God is, is to be at odds with my sin. You could flip it around and say it this way. If I am at home or at peace with my sin, I show that I remain at war with God. Owen was passionate about this. He saw as he looked around lives of people who carried the name of Christ that drug that name through the mud in lives of sin. It was hypocrisy run rampant in their lives. And he was saying, listen, let's, let's go to war with our own sin. Hmm. This is a quote from Owen in the mortification of sin in believers. Do you mortify, Christian? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And then this is my favorite line. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Now that's good enough to write at the front cover of your Bible, friends, right? Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's the work of a Christian. I mean, think of this. One of the highest forms of worship of God is the killing of sin in your life. It's the treasuring of God and the hunting and finding and killing of sin. The question is not if there is sin. The question is where is it? Where is it hiding? And what am I going to do to put it to death? Hmm. Mortify it. Be killing sin, brothers and sisters, or sin will be killing you. Now, Romans 8, 13. I want to emphasize the if. If you go there in your Bible, grab a pen, underline, circle the if. Many people suggest this is not a real condition. I don't think it's fair to the text to suggest it's not a real condition. This is a very real condition because it's a warning. The if is a conditional statement, and it rings true. If you live according to the flesh, you will perish. You will go to hell. This is a very clear warning, and it's given to the church. It's given to those who carry the name of Christ. Why? Because you can carry the name of Christ and be self-deceived. You can think you're a Christian, but if you live in the dark, you lie. First John, right? The truth is not in you. If you live for the world, if you live at home with your sin, you show yourself to be unsaved. But if you are at home with Christ, if you have found forgiveness and life, if you have seen his sacrifice for your sins and understood what that means, what holiness is, then you will hunt and kill sin. If by the Spirit, this is important, it's not in our own power. We can't just will this up, okay, I'm going to go after sin, I'm going to do it. No, this is a dependent work. The Spirit of God who is in you, believer, will help you. The Spirit of God is the one who uses the Word of God to convict us concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He is the one who, who weighs heavy on our hearts when we sin, and what will we do in that moment? Harden our hearts? Justify? Ignore? Or go hunting? In the power of the Spirit, you have to put to death the deeds of the body. Now, how do you kill deeds? Have you ever wondered that? How do you go and kill deeds? Evil deeds in your life. How do you kill those? Some have suggested the illustration of dandelions. I have had my fair share of dandelions over the years. Here's one way you do not kill dandelions by chopping their heads off. Well, I can't see it. It must be good. Guarantee you, you're not good. 
they're going to come back with a vengeance. You have to go to the root. You've got to get to the root. Where did this sin originate? It started with a desire, a wrong desire, a misplaced desire, a corrupt desire. All of the sin, the deeds, the action of the flesh begins with a longing. That desire is the target of your hunt. You have to find the sin at the source. Listen to how Owen said it. He said, sin carries on its war by entangling the affections. That's another word for desire. It draws them into an allegiance against the mind. Now, grace may be enthroned in the mind, but if sin controls the affections, it has seized a fort from which it will continually assault the soul. Hence, as we shall see, the work of killing sin, mortification, is chiefly directed to take place upon the affections. What is the whisper? What is the longing? What do I believe will give life? Why did I do that? This is parenting advice, friends. This is parenting 101. It's not just, you shouldn't have done that, tell her sorry. It's, why? Why did you do that? What is whispering in your heart that would lead you to say that to your sister, to your brother, to your father? or your mother. We choose to believe a lie, and from that lie, death happens. We must fight at the level of the heart. Find those desires and choke them out. Choke them out. Lust, pornography, Adultery, all of this work, friends, sexual immorality, our day is filled. But guess what? There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Throughout the ages, humanity has dealt with the lust of the flesh. Don't give yourself a pass because of modern technology. You kill sin, my friends when you go to the heart and you find that errant desire, that promise that says there's satisfaction in life, and you say, that's a lie! That's a lie! There's no life there! I will tell you what life is. Heart. Life is obedience. Life is in Christ. Life is in surrender. Life is in joy in Him. Purity. Holiness. Fill it up there and watch your lust run out the door. This is what he says. Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in the gospel. Live in this. And you will die a conqueror. Yes, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Praise God. Now, we know that we will fight sin all the way till we come face to face with him. That is our work. And he goes on to remind all over the place, mortification is not the final satisfaction of, of standing over your lust and saying, you're done, great, now I don't have to deal with that anymore. That's not what it is. It is victory upon victory upon victory. Standing firm does not mean that there is no temptation. Think of this. A tree that has roots is called, uh, rooted in standing firm, not because the wind doesn't blow, but because the wind, when the wind blows, it stands firm. That's what it means to stand against temptation and sin. Get roots deep into the gospel. And when the temptation comes, you will grip there and say, no, there's better there's a better joy. There's a greater satisfaction. I find it in Christ alone. In obedience. Just meeting with someone recently, just, just saying, you know, I, 
I tell you from my own experience and from the word of God, obedience is always most satisfying. Obey the Lord. Oh man, you want delight? You want satisfaction? You want joy unending? Submit to him. Obey him from the heart. Honor him. There is satisfaction that only God can give that your soul was designed to know. Sin will never satisfy. So our response this morning, I want to ask just a couple questions. Number one, are you at peace with God in Jesus Christ? I don't want to assume in a room like this that everybody is in the same place. Have you come to that realization like Owen did when he found himself sitting under the the ministry of just that ordinary country preacher, that there is a deep and, and, and serious problem inside of you, and that is called sin. It is a problem that you cannot remedy. You are enslaved to sin. You need a Savior. There is good news, friends. God has given away for sinners to be delivered from his eternal wrath for their sins. That way, his name is Jesus. Jesus has been sent to live and obey everywhere you disobeyed. He obeyed perfectly, which qualified him then to take the cross and to become the the uh, sin-satisfying sacrifice in your place. He took all of your sin upon himself and then he died what should happen to you he took he died he received the wrath of god that was stored up for you and he paid it in full and then he was buried but unlike every other religious hero jesus is not dead He rose from the grave, which was the final stamp of approval of the Father who said, it is finished. My wrath is satisfied. My son is alive. And in his name, you can be forgiven. So repent. Repent of your sins today. Turn from death to life. Trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. We've got to understand this. Salvation is not just about just wonderful living here and now. Salvation at its core is about being delivered from the wrath of God for sin and offense. We must run to Him, cling to Him, look to Him, depend upon Him alone. No amount of work can save you. Are you at peace with God in Jesus Christ? I pray you are today. If you're not, if you're here and you're saying, I'm not, I'm not where I need to be, today is the day. Just tell him, Father, I, I, I repent of my sins. I turn to Jesus. I look to him as my Savior and Lord. Save me. Right? Save me. I make him my king, my joy, my hope alone. For all those who are here who have done that, you're here, and you say, I, I have done that. I believe Jesus is my hope. He died for my sins. He has set me free. I am forgiven in in Christ. I'm a new creation. Then this question is for you. Are you at war with your sin? We have been studying through the Gospel of Luke and we have seen how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. They were so quick to point the finger at everyone else's sin. Oh, we're standing against this sin. Oh, I'm thankful that I'm not like that. That's a terrible sin. Look at that guy over there. Everything out here. What did Jesus do? He said, look in. Don't be fools. Don't be a hypocrite. Of greatest concern should not be to your soul the sin of others. It should be your own. Always. Are you at war with your sin? Do you live your week hunting and killing your sin in the power of the Spirit? 
so that you can adorn the gospel with obedience and progressing in godliness in your life. That, that is your mission, Christian. That is worship, Christian. It's what it looks like to, to embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord, to say, you are the all-satisfying reality of my life. I will live holy as you are holy. Help me. Show me my sin. So where is it? Where, where is the sin in your life? We're going hunting today and tomorrow and the next day. You're a hunter. We should be at war, my friends, with sin. Sin in our lives. The benefit of this is when you choke out sin in the power of the Spirit, there is joy. There is freedom. There is satisfaction. There is such a greater pleasure to be found in obedience to God. May the generations that follow us say of us, you know, those people really took sin seriously. They didn't minimize it. They didn't ignore it. They didn't give fair names to foul sins. They were committed to holiness, not just in others, right? Not just cultural holiness, but in their hearts, in their walk with God. I find it amazing that, that these folks are, are called Puritans. <laughs> Puritans. It's kind of an amazing label to have stuck on you the halls of church history. Would, would the generations to come ever call us Puritans? What an honor it would be. What an adornment it would be to the power of the gospel that saved us sinners. What a heralding legacy it would be to those who would come. As I read through these various biographies, I was struck by how many people said, you know, John Owen was not just committed in the promotion of holiness in his writing and his teaching and preaching. He lived holy, right? I mean, he, his life was shining of the holiness of God. Not one person said, well, he, you know, he talked a lot about holiness, but wow. It, not one person has said that. I find that really amazing. I mean, you're going to write a book on humility? Guess what? You become the bullseye target for. Well, that guy's not humble. It's amazing to me that a man so defined in, in a legacy of, of promoting holiness said of his own heart, first and foremost, let's go here. I long for that from my heart more, more and more and more. And for all of us, let's pray. Lord, we give praise to you for the life of John Owen, a sinner saved by your grace. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for your glory alone. We give praise to you for his delight in your word, for his eyes sovereignly opened by your spirit to see your son as Savior and Lord and King. We thank you for the, the work of his life as he poured himself out through his pen and through his teaching and preaching and traveling. We thank you for the difference that one man can make in this fallen world. We pray, Lord, that you would raise us up to be like this man was in our age, in our day, that we would be not just inspired by the things that we have seen you accomplish in this man, but, but, but that we would be equipped by his life and encouraged to run our race faithfully. We thank you, Lord, for those who have gone before, for the witness they give of the power of the gospel. And here we are running our race now, Lord. Find us faithful, we pray. Find us faithful. May we be hunters and killers of our own sin, deeply delighting in your glory, in your holiness, 
and putting to work day by day the function of the gospel, the application of, of your son's work on our behalf. As we find our sin, Lord, bring us to our knees to own it, to call it what it is, to lay it at your feet in confession and to be reminded of the, the provision of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, that we are forgiven in his work. Now, Lord, may we turn from it, not just say over and over and over, but truly call it what it is and hate it like you hate it. Hate it from the heart and, and turn away from it and choose to replace it with satisfaction in you, delight in you, joy in you. Crowd it out, Lord. Choke it off that we could experience the joy of godliness as we walk in your light. We thank you for the incredible ministry of the Holy Spirit in this place, even now. In my own life, Lord, I give praise to you, Spirit, for your work. I thank you for your conviction. I delight in it. I encourage it. I embrace it more, Lord, more. Make us holy, we pray, God. Make us holy that we might adorn the gospel in such a way to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.